Well, greetings. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This Revolution Podcast. For all the returning listeners and subscribers, thank you for coming back. To those new to the channel, welcome. Hope you enjoy the show. If you like what you hear, make sure to hit like and subscribe on your way out. Before we bring in our co-hosts, I want to send a big, giant birthday shout out to everyone's favorite professor of history at Missouri State University, Mean Jean Bajlan. Also, just a reminder, Ben Burgess and I are once again doing our single commie Valentine's Day meetup in L.A. at the Rainbow in West Hollywood. It was so much fun last year. We're still alone, and we decided to do it again. <laughs> True story. So, you want to come hang out, have a few drinks with me and Ben, talk some shit. Actually, last time, guys, want to talk philosophy, of course, Ben. Also, MT will be joining us in the champagne room where we will interrogate the Monique interview on Club Shay Shay. Is it a Cat Williams part two? We'll let y'all see and decide. Now let's bring in the crew. First and foremost, we have my co-host, my homie, my dog, the man of the Mau Mau Hour, AKA Mr. Florida. Please welcome Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings to Jason Miles. <laughs> Steve keeps making fun of my my Pascal shirts. <laughs> <laughs> and coming from the Great White North, he is the Great White Hope of TIR. He is Deep State Cooler. Hello, everyone. The um, yeah, like uh, is that. Am I the last Caucasian or um, the just one that's uh, lasted un- uncharacteristically long, <laughs> given the harsh working conditions and malarial weather? Well, isn't Quinn kind of white? The Well, frankly, I think that his generation, they can't say it, obviously, but <laughs> just like their post-gender, kind of like... Race. He's kind of like a little bit of everything, ain't he? I think he is, because you look at him you're like, are you some kind of Puerto Rican? <laughs> He's what some of my um, demelinated uh, compatriots in the inland Pacific Northwest might describe as a mud person. Nope. Um, the... <laughs> oh, charming, charming. No, like, I frankly, I think it's the future, right? And I'm here for our... Uh, for my uh, future overlords, um, because you know the the amount of um, miscegenation is mm-hmm. at an all time high, and uh, you end up with people who are a little bit of everything. Um, you, uh, you guys covered Bullworth um, once on the show, right? Uh, the movie night, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, movie and I remember um, he's in some radio show and. He's like, well, you know, it's it's rich people against um, can't remember if it was rich people or white people. And he says, yeah, we just have to get rid of them. He's like, yeah, what do you mean? White people. We just have to fuck until we're all the same color. <laughs> Cuba, Vulcan Backfire on Twitch says, 
I came in on mud person with no (laughs) (laughs) speaking of melanated people uh, it's the birthday boy who is off camera he's actually recovering from some sickness some kid inspired sickness Mean Gene Bajlan oh he threw the camera on Oh, your mic but not the on. audio. Your mic ain't on. Look at it. He was talking. He's getting ready to talk all that shit. Look at him. <laughs> Look how mad he looks. Gene. Nope, we still can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yep. Yeah, I'm doing good. No, I didn't have any clothes on, and I didn't <laughs> think Pascal wanted to see my uh, my uh, titties. You know, so uh, I spad him. I spad man titties a little bit, a bit much. Yeah, exactly. Well, since you're here, Gene, I actually said before you snuck in, I said when we were off air, I was like, oh, I wanted to get Gene, but he was very ill, and we were yeah, talking I was, about. I was pretty. I was pretty ill. Still, don't really have an appetite, but at least I'm not projectile vomiting. Alfie was sick at the same time. Um, Have you considered getting a food taster? <laughs> That's what the kids are fat for. They were just slow in getting That's smart. They have a uh, lower body size, right? Faster metabolism. And Anything will hit them first. Hits them first. Unfortunately, that didn't help. Old CIA trick, right? Exactly. Send in the children. The best thing is. If you're in the CIA, you're usually in places with lots of disposable street kids. I'm I'm Reed really Brad. making myself Reed look Brad. good tonight, aren't I? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I, just, you know, I just have this. I just, I just found I found a uh, I found a TikTok of some rappers uh, who looked like they smoked all of the crack, but the thing is, I can't get their their the uh, lyrics out my head. But it's like, I look at them, I'm like, you smoked all the crack. And it's too much for me. It's definitely champagne room material that we will be it's playing. champagne room material. It's it's almost as bad as the, you know. But I will tell you this, Jason Mark. It did get that other hip-hop song out out my head. The one about... Uh, Eating ass? No, the one about being a trans woman. No. <laughs> Titties on the top and dick on the bottom. <laughs> Which I also feel doubles up for middle-aged men as well. So it can be, we can, that can be a joint out anthem because both middle-aged men and trans women have titties at the top. Have titties on the top. And, and, you know, like, I feel like those two groups, um, obviously have so much in common, but, uh, more could be done to cultivate solidarity. Definitely. Definitely. Let's get the chases and the dolls together to make peace. Well, let's get let's get mildly serious here, uh, Gene. This is Gene, Cuba, Pascal, Robert. I'm basically going to throw this out here and move out of the way for you three juggernauts to mull this over. I hit up Cuba today. I was like, "Hey, what's your what's your topic?" And Cuba goes, um, "I want to talk about something a little more wide ranging on geopolitics and technology." So, Cuba, I'm going to move out of the way and let you do your thing. Um, so I was watching, 
a video by Shoe on Head, um, which made uh, me think. Wait, wait, is she Canadian? Can I ask? I don't believe so. She strikes me as like a proper Californian. Because uh, I know she used but, to date that that Canadian YouTuber, the Armored Skeptic. Mm, the I'm, I feel like they're all dating each other. Like left YouTube is just one big polycule. Um, but the um, me and Pascal yeah, have to be invited to that. <laughs> the um, just wait, just wait. Like um. Talk to Jason, because I bet he's all over that. Um, but I think that um, what she had to say was interesting. Um, she linked together the male loneliness epidemic, which is uh, a real thing, um, very distressing uh, development, especially for, uh, frankly, men our age, right? The uh, median number of close friends is it median or is it modal, right? The average number of close friends for uh, especially a white man, white American man um, between the ages of 35 and 50 is zero. Um, and the um, with younger men, that's also compounded by increased rates of, you know, but I don't want to say involuntary celibacy, <laughs> involuntary celibacy. Um, and tied that to the rise of these apps that promise AI companionship. Now, what we see is a two-sided phenomenon. There's a social development and then a technological adaptation, one which is only contemplated because there's a profit potential behind it. Right. The um, think about how much it costs somebody to to date or marry. And if you could get a fraction of that through subscription fees. For your idealized AI girlfriend, then uh, that's an extremely uh, lucrative um, business line. And it made me think, what's what are the crises in our geopolitics and our political economy right now? What are the technologies that are developing or available? And how might they be applied to those problems by the people who have the resources? Uh, I'm not implying that this is necessarily going to be a positive adaptation, right? Because ultimately the technology is deployed in ways determined by the people who control the technology. But when we look at geopolitical developments or analyze political economic conditions, we tend to do so without um, taking into account how adopting new technologies might shift the basis of the problem, how solutions or developments, changes in um, the technological realm feedback onto political, economic, social problems. So I thought that um, we could go through some of the big um, hotspots, flashpoints, structural crises, and look at what the potential is for the actors that are relevant 
to try to develop technical solutions rather than finding uh, political settlements or um, addressing serious uh, material conditions. For instance, the um, when you look at both the Gaza attack and um, by Hamas, the attack coming out of Gaza and the Israeli response, these are deeply shaped by the technology that Israel deployed in uh, creating the uh, wall around Gaza, the way that they structured their defense uh, based on the promises of this technology. Hamas responds by, um, like the Houthis and like uh, many other insurgent groups around the world, by uh, taking technology developed elsewhere, commercialized, uh, spread through um, the international supply chains, drones that you can buy on Alibaba, and deploying them in new ways to um, provide solutions for the challenges posed by Israeli security. Now, we can start there or um, with some of the responses to the um, Gaza conflict. For instance, the Houthi um, the blockade of the Red Sea for Western shipping, right? For uh, countries that are uh, aligned with Israel in the conflict over Gaza. Uh, for instance, Chinese flagships can just pass right on through. <clears throat> that is possible because of an adaptation of uh, new forms of warfare by the Houthi, like drone swarms. Um, and the response might also be a technological one. It's long been a dream of uh, the Emiratis, not just the Emiratis, but uh, Americans as well, to develop a land link from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean, which would make the Red Sea route extraneous. Now, as long as the Red Sea route was open and the Panama Canal was uh, available, then there was no interest in <coughs> the type of infrastructure investments necessary to build uh, relevant uh, scale road or rail solution going from the um, oil regions of Saudi Arabia, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, uh, the GCC countries in general to, uh, to the Mediterranean coast. It's also something that you can't do without Israel. Um, the alternative would be to try to go through Syria obvious problems with that. And um, so you have a geopolitical conflict creating an economic bottleneck and the solution rather than resolving the underlying uh, political issue might be this technical patch to create a land route through um, Saudi Arabia and up through Jordan and Israel uh, in order to make up for the loss of uh, the Red Sea and the Panama and the Suez Canal. In some ways, China and their um, Belt and Road Initiative creating a Eurasian land route has been very prescient. 
the world system up through this current moment has been based on American control of major shipping lanes and open seas for uh, the bulk movement of goods. That was taken for granted and alternative uh, avenues for uh, movement of freight fell, fell away. But now there's a problem and it might lead to uh, a new series of investments, ones which actually might dovetail into some of the bigger utopian projects coming out of uh, the GCC. For instance, Nelm. The um, concept was always that Nelm would be linked by rail to the other centers of Saudi Arabia and the Arabian Peninsula. And now, apart from the kind of fever... I'm sorry, Kuba, what is Nelm? Oh, Nelm is the... Um, it's a giant, giant stupid stupid mega project where they're going to make a giant city in the middle of the desert that is a line. Yes, a wall. Oh, it's just a giant wall that's really, really long. Mm-hmm. And it's it's some kind of uh, it's it's basically a mega project, a mega construction project to build a new type of city. It's not very well thought out, but you know, things don't have to be well thought out in the Gulf. You just need to be able to hold a Gulf dictator's uh, attention for 15 minutes with the right PowerPoint, and then you'll get billions to build this thing. But Nome was this big uh, construction project, a new modern city uh, in the desert that is constructed as a line. Is it green? Beyond modern. Is it green? Yes, it's supposed to be green. It's Um, probably not very green. Well, the concept is that it will be powered by hydrogen and solar. Okay. Pascal, do you uh, know about Nelm? No? I've seen videos of it. What do you yeah, think? At this point, I'm sorry. At this point, it's entirely, uh, they haven't broken ground. Nobody's no. moved in. It's still at the concept. You know how the Gulf they has these little flashy little ads they yeah. do for all the little things they have to plan? Mm. A few fake islands they're going to create to you know, have to go visit. Is it is it more of a resort thing or is it is it? No, no, it's a city. city. It's it's supposed to be a city. But for well-to-do people, like get away from the dying world. Here's a. Yeah, there's a bunch of these giant projects that they're doing, not just in the Gulf. For example, the Egyptians are building this huge administrative capital outside of uh, outside of Cairo. Um, you know, the Nome is not the only mega project that's going on in the Gulf. There's like there's one. I mean, like, I can't keep up with all the mega projects. I'm sure Kuba knows better than me. But Nome is one of these big gargantuan uh, projects that's being <clears throat> talked about but has yet to be executed uh, upon. Uh, you know, some of these projects get half done and abandoned. I mean, even in Dubai, I think there was supposed to be that World Islands thing. Yeah. yeah. That, that never They happened. gave up on that one. They gave up on that one. But Nome, I think, will probably end up in that direction. But you know, to speak to Kuba's point about technological solutions, I think that's kind of a, that's kind of an interesting one. Whether, you know, you can get a technological, a technological fix, a band-aid fix, as it were, that can keep things chugging along with the st- uh, same structural problems, and what are the unforeseen consequences 
of those transformations. I mean, when Cooper started, he was talking about the epidemic of male loneliness, which obviously we might link to, you know, the end of Fordism, the breakdown of uh, neoliberalism. And then obviously there is profit opportunities in that loneliness. And then what happens, you have all these apps that are perhaps addictive or they play on, you know, play psychological tricks on people. Uh, and that reinforces in a kind of vicious cycle, that cycle of, uh, of, of loneliness. So it doesn't resolve the problem, but kind of masks that problem with a Band-Aid solution. But, you know, how long is an AI girlfriend going to be able to, you know, keep someone happy? I don't really know about it. But it does seem that the to speak to the loneliness point, um, you know, it it, it it kind of makes sense. You know, if we look in the context of an atomizing society, you know, we now have all these uh, um, sex apps that people use anyway, right? And you know, it's promoting a culture in which relations are disposable, right? feel offended you're talking shit about me it's okay jason miles but you know in in, in, in a society you know in, in a society which is atomizing and where you have to move around and things like that that kind of relationship is going to be the one that is viable because it, if you can't if you can't settle down with somebody you just get back on the dick carousel it, it, it's funny you speaking of the dick carousel it's funny you say that because i do live uh, about an hour away from a legal red light district. And <clears throat> there's a few people that I've met down here that live in that area, literally within the red light district that are older than me or some people even younger than me that have no problem going there on the weekends and not on the weekends. And in talking to them, and kind of just thinking and, and talking to other men around my age that are single or newly single, um, there is kind of a, when we say incel, I think everybody thinks the kid that shot up those people in Santa Barbara, the, I can't think of his name right now, the ultimate gentleman. Um, and no one really thinks of like 40 to 50 year old men that also are in, you know, similar, uh, quote unquote, loneliness predicaments. Um, so many people I've met not from California that have moved down here and um, frequent the red light quite a bit. You know, it's it's never not busy uh, when I when I go uh, even even around that area. Well, it's because people because relationships are increasingly being presented as transactional very much so and so you know is it really that much of a leap if a relationship if relationships are increasingly being shown as transactional to just say well let's just make it a straight up transaction why yeah. why dance around the the uh, you know why why pretend that it's not just a straight transaction for sex Cut out the cut out the extra steps, as it were. Because well, you know, frankly, the until you had the notion of romantic, first romantic and then bourgeois yeah. marriage, yeah. 
then um, it was a question of, is it going to be a market transaction or is it going to be a quasi feudal property transfer from father to husband? Um, well, I would, I would point out here, I, I do see the parallel you're driving at Cuba, but you know, in the context of the pre-modern world, those marriages were very often within a kind of communal context. So it's not even just about one person marrying like another person with between two nuclear families, right? You know, we're, we're talking about like societies where you don't really have the concept of bourgeois individualism. So obviously, historically, marriage has always been, you know, has always had that kind of element to it. But I think there is something a little bit different between the kind of straight up commercialization of the modern era. I don't know. Would you would you agree with that, Kuba? I think that the. Um... I, I agree that it's different than the straight up commercialization of the modern era and in a materialist Marxist way, um, you can trace it by changes in the underlying economic structure of society. When you have um, familial organization, either through feudalism or through clan structures or embedded in village life, depending on the particular flavor and the a particular class location the um your you have some position in that overall hierarchical system you're somewhere in it and um marriage is just another manifestation of that it's often um you know it's an arranged marriage by parents or in some cases right like another authority figure will just tell you what to do um even if the impetus for the pairing comes from the couple itself, you'll need approval, right? Um, there's the lingering tradition of um, men asking fa um, women's fathers for their blessing or permission to, uh, to woo or wed their daughters, right? And then purely commercial transaction right, that, that goes along with sex work. That's something that accompanies a shift to a commercial society that possible under conditions of urbanization, the atomization of individuals from outside getting pulled out of those collective groups, whether familial or class or village based, and then being able to make those individual level um, decisions, both the male and the female side. And, and now, right, there's been another change where, uh, especially during COVID, you had much fewer opportunities for interpersonal contact, fear of contagion, um, and the technologically mediated type of relationship, whether it's, um, transactional or not, <coughs> begins to replace cohabitation or um, interpersonal contact. And if you think about it, right, the difference between a girl friend that you make on a dating site or because you're on the same 
World of Warcraft guild or whatever internet mediated contact you have and you only see somebody through a screen and you only exchange messages, talk on the phone, maybe. And um, getting to the point where you meet in person is kind of a big deal. Well, until you get to that point, functionally, an AI that can simulate uh, human relationship through texts, chatting, now they do voice and everything. Um, well, how far away is that from your experience with a real person, especially as the AI gets better and better. Um, also, I think it dovetails. I don't want to be, I don't want to sort of uh, myopically fixate on the kind of Davos, Klaus Schwab depopulation agenda, <laughs> but within that world, the most optimistic take on wither humanity is that um, right now we've got a serious climate cli uh, crisis as well as a migration crisis, all kinds of different crises uh, happening. Um, and but there are also certain trends that go along with development and there is development taking place um, in all across the world. The idea being that as a society becomes more developed, uh, population uh, growth diminishes and then ultimately reverses. And that's a peaceful way to try to do a degrowth, right? Get everybody up to the point where they're um, rich and miserable like Westerners or South Koreans. Then they'll stop having kids um, and then we can ease some of the pressure that goes along with having um, a population of 8 billion on the planet, be it climate pressure or pressure on resources or even social pressure. That degrowth trajectory would, and that not degrowth, depopulation. I want to, it is, it is very, very different agendas. But um, like after the plague, the survivors found that their labor commanded a much greater wage just because of its scarcity. If you get to a point where the population is diminishing and the people left are largely old, then that will create more opportunities for the young. So we just need to get through this bottleneck where all of this bad stuff is happening. And then... Um, basically not solve the family problem, not solve the laziness, uh, the loneliness problem, uh, apologies, um, in a way that leads to more relationships, but in a way that's palliative, right? That but the, the, issue, the issue with, um, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm noticing now, perhaps, and maybe I'm wrong about this, I'd like to hear what like Pascal and uh, Jason have to say about this, but, you know, we live in a society where you have an almost enormous amount of economic insecurity and a labor force that is increasingly told to be flexible and even if you're wealthy you could be commanding a good salary you know you can't count on commanding that good salary because you could lose your job 
in the latest round of cuts in tech or what have you. So even wealthy people feel insecure. And, you know, whereas in the Fordist era, there was an incentive to have family, uh, you know, like you had the social reproduction, having a family unit was like a, a viable building block of the Fordist system. Uh, it seems that the male loneliness issue is a product of the fact that, you know, now you can't afford to have those relations. You have to be mobile, like you said. You have to be able to get the heck out of wherever, you know, you know, wherever you need to get your job, you, you'll go to. And if you're permanently on the move looking for jobs, um, you don't make friends. If you don't, if you're not in a workplace together for an extended period of time, you don't build those relationships. And we've already discussed this before, Kuba. We live in a, an age where civil society is in massive decline as well. So people in this like neoliberal era are atomized by the very net, uh, you know, the very political economy uh, of the system. It creates this loneliness, uh, but it also creates those opportunities for people to make money off that loneliness, whether it's through the, the sex apps and the dick carousel or through this emergent system of AI. Now, I do wonder whether AI really will be that successful uh, because, you know, one of the interesting things in video games recently is the failure of, um, what is it called? The, uh, the, the new Skyrim, the space Skyrim. Um, my name is blanking on the game at the moment. Uh, needless to say, uh it's a huge exploring game but it's it's procedurally generated and people lost interest in the game once they realized the trick was procedurally generated if that makes sense so even if functionally you know you, the the relationship with the ai is indistinguishable uh yet sense from a, a really once the once the curtain has been lifted that this is just a mindless uh, machine spouting back an algorithm to you i don't know if it's really going to resolve uh, that issue i think it'll all just as you say probably just feed into the further atomization of society but i don't know pascal you want to add think, to that oh, oh yes what listen to pascal I, I don't particularly see how the technology is going to provide a full satisfaction in terms of resolving the issue of the emotional kind of gap that's going to be caused by these types of contradictions that we have within our society. I think that what's going to be needed is going to be some type of real social reflection as to what the definitions of the function of our society really is in this kind of post-technological world where so much is in flux because people are talking about, you know, male loneliness what about women? Are women feeling fulfilled particularly right now? Are, are women feeling particularly jazzy and wonderful? Is everything okay with them? <laughs> I think that actually the notion that we're living in a society where anyone is particularly feeling fulfilled is pretty incorrect prognostication. I mean, I understand the dangers with the whole phenomenon of focusing on intels and everything else, but rates of suicide amongst young women have been going up as well as young men. There's a whole range of problems that we have in our society that I don't think this quick fix technological outlook is going to answer. Cooper? Well, uh, my my response to that would be um, 
it's quite possible that the quick fix technological solution is very unsatisfactory, but still, but, but its point is not to provide satisfaction. Its point mm -hmm. is to lower the pressure, uh, lower the heat so that you have fewer school shootings and people just stay at home and do what they're supposed to. Um, the outcome that's selected for apart from the profitability of the particular companies involved is uh, overall social stability. It's not the flowering of uh, the individual or um, the fulfillment of um, the lives of young people. And I think that part of this approach is predicated on a kind of surrender of the idea that people will have satisfying lives. At one point, there was hope that people could get life satisfaction as being part of a movement that progresses history and that brings about change and improvement, uh, whether it's through some kind of religious consummation or through a revolutionary political program or through technological breakthroughs, right? Uh, NASA, the Communist Party, the Catholic Church. That fell away in the 70s to be replaced by this neoliberal view that fulfillment is available through a combination of personal therapeutics, self-help, self-growth, you know, together with um, a consumer, uh, an abundant consumer economy that, well, give up on changing the world, give up on um, any of these grand plans, grand visions for humanity, just, you know, eat, pray, love. Mm -hmm. That actually may be one of the best encapsulations of this particular view of human flourishing. And now, just looking at the numbers from Davos, it's like, well, I mean, if we go to bugs, everyone can eat. <laughs> the prayer thing, that leads to Al-Qaeda, right? Like, maybe we want to back away from that. Um, and love, well, obviously these terribly damaged, lonely people who are struggling uh, to get by and that we need to be maximally flexible as a labor force and maximally exploitable as a, um, as a means of, you know, extracting uh, profit from them. Uh, they're not going to love anybody. There's no love for them. So what can we, what can be provided uh, in such a way that they don't, it, this doesn't boil over. And I think that uh, you can see a similar type of pessimism at work with climate change programs. We've gone from, we're going to save the world to um, let's introduce some tweaks so that uh, not all of us are going to be boiling to death, right? Like, let's make things comfortable enough so that the next few generations can just scuttle by uh, and survive at whatever level uh, rather than trying to, to solve a problem because we've given up on solving problems. Pascal, you want to add anything to that? 
Kuwana asks, do the global management elite realize how tired the world is with their overall management of affairs in the first place? Oh, yes, definitely. The um, This year, the number one uh, topic at Davos, the entire theme, was uh, disinformation, media manipulation, this kind of thing. Because there's an awareness that the legitimacy of the incumbent elites is shot. Nobody trusts them. Nobody believes them. Um, and instead, and you know, that's fine if you're the only game in town. But between the decentralizing uh, force of um, online communication and the shift towards multipolarity with different centers that are technologically uh, savvy and um, well-resourced being able to play in this field, you um, now that elite narrative is no longer a monopoly. You have all kinds of alternatives. And when I say all kinds, I mean all kinds. It goes from things that are absolutely fantastical, like um, uh, the great Tataria theory um, or different flavors of um, semi-occult mystical history to things like QAnon, um, things, uh, conspiracy theories around the adaptation and rollout of technology uh, to the axis of resistance narratives coming uh, that lionize Syria, Iran, etc. cetera, uh, Tucker Carlson in Russia. And having both lost the authority and trust of the uh, publics in the West and now have uh, now with the emergence of these rival centers that push uh, narratives that are not favorable to the Davos elite, you have uh, a panic, right? Um, how do we reestablish our authority? How do we get back in command of the system? And <clears throat> as with the male loneliness crisis and AI girlfriends as, as a solution, the idea is that we can find a technical fix, some kind of algorithmic monitoring of social media posts or um, counter disinformation uh, broadcast through bot networks that would, um, again, the goal is not a solution. The goal is not to remove the scales from the eyes of the, the public and encourage them to re-engage as active informed citizens. The goal is um, anesthesia, right? The let's calm them down and get them away, you know, get the toddler away from the knife drawer, get them away from the, from the electrical socket um, and uh, entertain them enough so they don't know that we're, you know, we're um, otherwise completely neglecting them. Tech to kick the can down the road. Exactly, Connor. Yeah, I mean, I th that's that's what it always comes down to with technological fixes anyway. Uh, you know, they might change the dynamics, but if they don't resolve the underlying program, the problem, the problem either remains or metastasizes and turns into another problem. And, uh, you know, that's that's what that's what people are suffering from now, because I think 
as Kuba points out, the global elite has never been so illegitimate in some hands, but they've also never been so powerful in other ways because, mm. because uh, you know, there is no opposition. There's no, there's no, there's no universal opposition to this global elite. There's no vision uh, for what to do. And I always go back to the example of what happened in Sri Lanka when people broke into the presidential palace and the only thing they could think to do was to get on the guy's peloton and swim in his machine. But what do you do the day after the revolution? So without same thing, January 6th. Yeah, same thing with January 6th. Same things with that, you know, like what happened with the Arab Spring. You know, all the, you know, it either de degenerated into, we'll just go back to how it was before, but with a new face, or it's machetes at dawn. You know, like that's, that's, uh, the alternative. So, I mean, look, all the way through this COVID crisis, right? All the way through people going on about how the two-party system is weak. The two-party system in America is doing bloody fine, right? They're about to like foist uh, Joe Biden on people again, right? Well, both, or Donald both Trump. yeah, that's what's so interesting. Everybody, you know, from everybody's like calling for the, everybody's about to say, oh, this is all doomed. It's all yeah. over. Uh, you know, like Israel is about to collapse. The Western system is about to collapse. It's like, it doesn't seem like that to me. It seems like there might be a few moving around of the furniture taking place. Uh, maybe trying I mean, to get everything the is in a state of collapse, but it doesn't mean everything is collapsing at the same time either. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just because your car doesn't work doesn't mean your car is going to stop working. I mean, what's interesting when you talk about like, this is malfunctioning doesn't mean you're going to stop working. I, I I think what you guys are talking about kind of also dovetails into what Pascal uh, wanted to talk about today with Haiti um, when it comes to uh, leadership and and no alternative. Um, yes. Oh, well, look at Pascal. Just <laughs> all to the side. <laughs> No, that's uh, a good point. You, I was just yeah, you want to you talk us a little bit about what's going on in Haiti? Because there's still yeah, no uh, election that's taken place, and it's been what, three years? In three years, a former rebel leader made a surprise appearance in Haiti's capital on Tuesday amid a large protest across the country for the second consecutive day, demanding ouster outside of Prime Minister Ariel Henry. Guy Philippe, who played a key role in the 2004 rebellion against former President Jean-Bertrand Aristide, was briefly spotted in the upscale community of Pretoville in Port-au-Prince, where he shook hands with Haitians at a park in front of police station before he left. It wasn't immediately clear where Philippe was going, but dozens of motorcycles, drivers, and clearly supporters tried to track him down across Blocks of burning tires. What's really interesting about this is that this character, Guy Philippe, was a guy who was supported by various institutions throughout outside of the United States and the West to sponsor the coup against Jean-Bertrand Aristide in 2004, along with the Republican administration at the time, which was the Bush administration. He was someone who was working out of the Dominican Republic to help facilitate this massive coup in 2004 that led to massive displacement and all types of rabid crimes in the country, but at the same time, eventually ends up becoming arrested for a large amount of drug crimes in you know, the late arts down the line. Recently, he's, he's released, and now he's in the country talking about we need to have a rebellion 
to straighten this kind of situation out. And a friend of mine who works in who kind of works in international finance said something interesting to me. He said, "I wouldn't surprise if they make this today. If they, I wouldn't be surprised if they try to make this bloody bastard the next president of Haiti." I said, "You know, you laugh. This is fun. This is kind of funny, but I wouldn't be shocked if they didn't they didn't try to do that because he has this kind of resume as this international man of action who can you know form a military who can arouse to the to the to the, to the demands of the people." And get them a rise, a rise to arise their needs to uh, to the moment at hand, but also at the same time is willing enough to be a, a boot on the neck of any kind of progressive development left alternative to the status quo that you know right wing forces can use him, and he's not a threat to the traditional Haitian oligarchy. So what's really interesting to me, to me in, in line with what we're talking about is these situations where we have these status quos. But we don't have any kind of real political uh, uh, replacement to these vacuums. I look at the situation with Haiti, where we have a political vacuum, where there's really no challenge to the status quo. And now it seems like an actor is being presented into the waters who is, you know, the bad, the bad old days, if not worse, but is being feted as some kind of, some kind of alternative merely because... He seems to be like, you know, well, his guns worked better better last time around. What, what do you guys think about this kind of dynamic? Is this something we've seen in third world situations in, in the global south? Well, are, is, is anyone following? I'm sure Cuba is. Uh, El Salvador? Yes. The, um, I, I want to say Bukele. I'm, yeah. Am I pronouncing Bukele. that right? Yeah. Um, election. And there was... Um, there's a sort of conservative geopolitical thesis um, that isn't that postulates. Uh, it goes back to Sam Huntington. He said that the main distinction between nations will not be their nature of government, but the extent that they're governable mm -hmm. or governed. Mm -hmm. And during the um, starting in the 90s, but progressing through to um, the current day and only accelerating uh, has been a persistent state uh, of crisis in the state formation uh, and governability of um, countries across the global south. Uh, Somalia broke in the uh, 90s and has never been put back together, right? Mm -hmm. um, despite there were efforts by the West, external forces, the United Nations to sort of reestablish uh, Mogadishu-based national government, uh, those failed, and attempts by Somali groups to assert their own dominance over uh, the territory of the whole country and have a kind of internal um, reestablishment of the state forms also failed. Since then, um, I talked about this a little with uh, Ben Burgess in the context of Jordan Peterson, but uh, Congo broke and was never put together. And we just yeah. stopped talking about it. Both yeah. Congo and Somalia continue to be um, violent, dangerous places with a tremendous amount of human suffering that just don't get talked about anymore. That was 30 years ago. Yeah. And. And, so what, and people, you know? and no, I'm, no, I'm saying that no, I'm not saying that that's the excuse why. I'm just saying mm -hmm. 30 years and it hasn't gotten better. And precisely, 
if not for that movie, I don't think anybody even talks about it in the 2000s. I mean, yeah, you can have, I mean, like, you obviously can't have people mobilized indefinitely, you know, doing the full Civil War thing for 100 years. But you can have 100 years of, you know, every 10 years it pops off, there's a massacre, and then you have the frozen conflict, right? And that's what we're looking at in large parts of the world, right? Frozen conflict. Pascal is talking about, is there really a solution to Haiti? You can change the faces at the top. I mean, you know, when uh, Aristide was elected, and correct me if I'm wrong, Pascal, you know, there was a hope that Aristide was actually uh, a kind of uh, a politician cut in a different mold from, um, you know, from the traditional Haitian political leader, that he was bringing some kind of fresh new politics. Uh, uh, you know, even if there was skepticism, but there was some like, there was, he was like a new type of leader. All right. We don't have that anymore. People don't buy it anymore. You know, uh, people are like, oh, it's just a new face. I think people have become a lot more cynical. Uh, you know, you have become a lot more cynical and a lot more kind of blackpilled about uh, the prospects of political change. And so you end up with a kind of carousel of faces. I mean, but people don't have much hope. It's, it's yeah, Groundhog like Day politically with new faces. I mean, I mean it's like in Britain, yeah. it looks yeah. like Labour is going to absolutely crush the Conservatives, mm. right? Looks like it, right? Mm. But they're only going to crush the Conservatives because the Conservatives themselves are so bad. And, you know, like it's not like people are voting for a positive agenda or yeah. have any no one effect. wins elections anymore there's just yeah. a party that's the biggest loser yeah there's just yeah exactly yeah. Uh, people smart. just i mean you know a lot of people i know who are like i'm gonna vote labor hate keir starmer hate the labor party but they're like we just don't want any more conservative Tory. rule and look that that's what the last election was all about negative polarization but negative polarization as a political strategy entrenches itself in political culture over time. And we live in this really weird moment in history where because there's no uh, because there's no hope of change, you know, and as we've talked about before, as Jason talks about a lot, you end up with this kind of hyper politics, this hyper polarization over things that doesn't matter, like whether you like the Barbie movie or not is yeah. the modern day equivalent of the Dreyfus affair. You know, that that's how that's how ridiculous our politics has become. But what happens then to a society that believes that activism is protesting for Margot Robbie? Um, politics is your opinion on I don't know, insert pop culture phenomenon here. Boom, and, boom, boom. And, and real issues kind of go by the wayside. Uh, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I, I can't no longer afford paying for the Chronicle. It's $27 a month for the digital. But in reading one of the headlines and a little bit of the, the byline underneath was uh, Mayor London Breed is advocating to repeal with and she's getting on board with the GOP in the state to repeal Proposition 47, which you've probably heard me talk about this before, 
um, in in San Francisco, I think in all of California, the uh, the limit to grand theft is nine hundred and fifty dollars, and I believe you don't get jail time or it's a misdemeanor. And she's trying to get that number taken back down um, because, again, media's shifted from talking about police overreach and violence to, oh, my God, look at all these brown people stealing from stores. Um, and well, uh, well, I'll be brief. A big reason for that bill was so many people were dying in prison because California had totally overpopulated their prisons. People were dying in holding cells. I think four or five people were dying a week. So they were trying to find ways to, you know, lessen that. And there were lawsuits coming in at the same time. So I'm sorry. Go ahead, Cooper. Well, well, I think that the key point of uh, in what you're saying is what happens to um, if the question is what happens to a society in which people take activism to be uh, social media performance. Mm-hmm. and consider political engagement to just be having the right opinions. I think that the work is done by redefining society upwards. So who cares about citizen activists? Who cares about um, mass uh, preoccupation with uh, cultural treats because we don't want the public looking in as we do the deals, right? Um, there's a technocratic version of this, which you see more in the EU, right? Like, let's create our little community in Brussels where we're getting away from all the, the crazy uh, pressure that comes from actually talking to regular people, mm-hmm. um, as well as pressure from scattered interest groups and just find technical solutions in room rooms full of right thinking experts. But you also see this in the democratic uh, party. uh, Most of all, where after a phenomenal campaign uh, in which uh, Obama managed to mobilize uh, an incredible number of voters from a, a large variety of backgrounds, the very first thing he did upon reaching office was to take that apart because the disengagement with politics is a feature, not a bug. The mistake from the elite perspective was counting on that disengagement to bleed into harmless pop culture preoccupations and cultural sideshows. Instead, what happened was that the urge, the need for people to understand their world and to engage with it led them to, you know, you you kick them out. It's like kicking out a bunch of believers from church and then seeing that they've built a little temple of their own, right? They're still doing it. They're just um, doing it in ways that you don't expect, in ways that don't necessarily make sense if Mm -hmm. you're if you have a rational goal of some kind of systemic change or even reformism, um, but which um, are meaningful enough personally so that people uh, can become invested in them, that they fulfill the same role 
that political leadership, whether institutional or personal, should be doing. And as long as the um, you have enough fights over Barbie versus Oppenheimer or trans bathrooms or Trump or whatever, then people like London Breed can make their deals with the Republicans. And uh, they see this as a great opportunity, right? That this is governance, um, that this is them doing their jobs. While, um, and this feeds back into the, the sort of Davos notion that the vast majority of the public is not particularly valuable, um, not particularly useful, and just needs to be herded around so they do as little damage as possible um, as they slowly euthanize themselves with uh, fentanyl and AI girlfriends. Jesus Christ. You could euthanize yourself, though, like properly in Canada now. Yeah. <laughs> it's been the, that way for like 10 years now. I mean, yeah, the Canadians are at this point, right? They're kind of saying the quiet part out loud in making... Uh, homelessness or various um, mental conditions um, grounds for uh, state-assisted euthanasia. Um, like personally, I think that um, there is a human right to suicide. Mm -hmm. Our lives are our own to do with as we please, and if we dispose of them, then um, that's on us. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a choice that we can legitimately make for ourselves. However, the whole suicide booth thing it's like you know like kissing booth well it's just it's just a bit it's it's i i actually yeah, this hasn't happened yet i i for the record I, there are no like it, oh, i thought it was only in alberta cuba it's, it's all over the country <laughs> i uh i 100% agree with cuba on this i think you know obviously i think there is a right to suicide i think people you know in an ideal world, if they're suffering very heavily from a terminal illness and they want to die at a time or place if they're choosing, I think that's actually a very moral decision to make uh, to allow them to do that. I think it's immoral to make people suffer. The problem is, in our current degenerating society, uh, that emancipatory right, as with so many emancipatory rights, gets turned against us to try and freaking get you know, the homeless people to kill themselves and granny to offer self so you can get the house. That, that was the gene. I'm being totally serious. We were on tour. I think we were going to this show in Edmonton and we were driving from somewhere in the interior. And I'll never forget that it came on the radio in Canada. So this has got to be like 2014, 2015 when that law came through. Does that sound about right, Cuba? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and the first thing I thought, because we had started the tour off in Vancouver, was what a way to get rid of your unhoused population. And also there's a lot of like, you know, unhoused natives and kind of crazy poverty in certain parts of, of Edmonton as well. And I was like, I get it to a certain extent. I agree with you, Kuba. I was nodding my head along to everything you said. And I agree with what you're saying, Gene, as far as like, oh, how do you get rid of this unwanted population? Because that's 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 a that's a conversation that no one thinks people are having in their 
local, state, and federal governments. But no one's trying to build permanent housing. No one even thinks about housing the whole population. They just recently did the count for homeless people in San Francisco County. And there was a reporter from our local PBS station that you probably remember living in the Bay, KQED Cuba. Um, And a reporter went on to count for just one small district. And she was saying, you know, it's hard. And Bill Cody, who's come on the show several times, used to do this count in, in his district in L.A., which was downtown L.A. You don't know who's sleeping on a couch for the night. Some people are actually at work. So they were like, they counted 7,000 people, and they know that's not even close to how many homeless people are in San Francisco. That's just the people they found in cars, on the street, you know, looking behind bushes. That's a, there's a lot. There's over 100,000 homeless people for the last count in California alone. And, and like you said, that's going to be a systemic undercount. Yeah. So, and you know, then there's New York, and then we're Pascal Lips. Florida has a very large population. I believe they're in the top three as much as uh, DeSantis loves acting like it's a wonderful place. They definitely have a massive homeless problem. So does Texas. Um, and go ahead. This dovetails with what we were talking about at the beginning, the, the male loneliness um, epidemic, because when a person is in crisis, they definitionally definitionally they've reached the end of what they can do for themselves they need help they need to reach out um in traditional societies like the way that poland uh, under the old government uh, law and justice handled uh homelessness was they took somebody figured out who their next of kin was and just dropped them off it's like they're your problem the uh <laughs> figure it out um the you know um and it's it comes from a traditional worldview right just like the polish nation is blood and soil right like so families right have a duty that's um that is outside of any voluntary association and that really breaches the what we would consider to be liberal individualism if you have a um social democratic or liberal program then the idea is that when somebody has reached the limits of what they can do for themselves then some agency of the state steps in uh, to support them and some of these interventions can be great some of them are um, misguided and what we can generally say is they're all under-resourced given the extent of the problem um and the um if you have friends then that's another place where you can get the support you need to get you through a crisis period the problem is that what works best is if you have friends that are in a stable highly resourced place so that they can take you in they can introduce you uh, around places where you might be able to find work um they can help set you up over um through that through that period they help you turn the corner but generally speaking if you have zero close friends because of the social factors that have isolated 
men most of all, but everybody in this culture, then you really are depend you're um, you're naked and alone right like you have to either survive by the skin of your teeth or rely on um whatever you can get out of the um, official system and republicans have quite explicitly for instance in florida made getting um uh, unemployment checks as difficult as possible by under-resourcing the administrative staff. And that is what they do if they can't just get rid of it entirely. Uh, meanwhile, in places where Democrats rule, you have all kinds of feckless interventions that tend to end up in surrender and a relapse to law and order thuggishness because you can't satisfy both your real constituents like the donor class and do something about mass problems. Yeah. Well, on that cheery note, <laughs> um, but fortunately there's this great program in Canada <laughs> where you I can think we can all qualify for. I, that 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 blew me away. I look before I came to Mexico, as some of you know that watched this show, I was in housing distress to say the least. And the three other people with me on the screen were extremely helpful in making sure that uh, I could a keep this show going and b uh, secure housing. So networks are extremely powerful and. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the three guys on the screen. So thank you guys very much. I kind of had to do it because <laughs> without this show, I'm very cancelable. <laughs> Jason, Jason gave Coob with a black card. <laughs> you act like Coob walks around and says the N-word all the time. No, I, but... I Exactly. I know you, the, tried, you, you, you. That was the plan. We'll, that we, was the we'll, plan. All call, we'll all corner him, and Jason will bully him. Yeah. Bully him into yeah, saying the N word. He walks Say it. Me until Say I it. <laughs> He's going to be like uh, the guy. Say it. No. No. No, 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 no. Um, thank you guys for checking everything out. If you're new here or returning subscriber, don't forget to like, um, subscribe if you haven't. If you're listening on Apple, subscribe and get access to where we're going next, which is the Champagne Room. Uh, if you have the means, enjoy this show and want to make sure we can continue to do these types of shows, then become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can have access to the patron-only Champagne Room. Join us for movie nights and get special patron-only merch. That being said, we're going in the champagne room. MT will be joining us. We're going to be watching some tomfoolery. We're going to be having a serious, non-serious talk. Um, Pascal, you coming with us? I'm coming in, bro. Kuba, you coming with us? Yeah, I'm down. Okay, Baj? Oh, shit. 
So I haven't been with these guys in the champagne room in fuck the whole crew. Shit, I, I, months. I, when was the last time all of us have been in the champagne room? I don't even know. God, I don't even know. We've done almost 800 shows between the regular TIR, Pop Life, Gaming Materialists, Mau Mau, Red Zone. What other shows do we do? Ben's show. Ben did 39 shows on here. Um, 800. So, hats off. Oh, God. My mouse just died again. Just want to end the show. Do you want, do, would you like me to end it for you? Because I'm, I'm in deep. I can, <laughs> I can end it. I can end it for you. You sound like you're Canadian. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> 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 <laughs>